Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast contains references to violence and suicide, as well as language which may not be suitable for children. Listener discretion advised. Cats. Imagine two boys growing up in Ohio. They live about 90 minutes from each other and never meet. That's a believable story, right? But imagine these boys, now a little older, heading down south. Hoping to cash in on a construction boom, they settle in a small town called DeLand. A small town you've probably never heard of unless you're from Central Florida, which is the only reason I know about it at all. In their 20s, these men work in the same business in the same little area, but never cross paths. Maybe the story becomes a little less believable. Okay, so these two men, they grow tired of Florida for whatever reason. They follow the next boom, this one's more about oil, a few states over, where they have their pick of where to live between Houston and Galveston Island. There are about a dozen small, mostly middle-class towns there. But somehow, they choose the same one. And not only that, they end up living two doors down from one another. This is the part where the story begins to get spooky. One of these men, Tim Miller, goes on to become a national hero. He saves missing children for a living. The other, his name is Clyde Hedrick, goes on to become a suspected serial killer. Now I'm in Texas because Tim believes his daughter was one of several women murdered by Clyde. They've still never knowingly spoken. So now would you believe this story? The story is going to get bigger than you ever anticipated getting. And I can just tell you this, I've, I've solved my daughter's murder. I'm Ali Conti, and from Cast Media, this is Vigilante, Episode 5, Squaring the Circle. So if you're enjoying the show so far, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That way you'll be notified when new episodes drop and you'll want to keep listening if you're a fan of either true crime or investigative journalism. Rating, reviewing, and subscribing will also help new people discover the show. Lastly, if you have an idea for a subsequent season of Vigilante, drop that in the review. I will be reading those over periodically. Never get tired of a good whodunit? Then you'll love June's journey. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries full of twists and turns around every corner. You'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, and relish the thrill of solving the case. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. 
Sit back, relax, and let your inner Sherlock Holmes escape to the glamorous Roaring Twenties. I've always thought that hidden object games like June's Journey strike the perfect balance between helping you relax and providing a mental pick-me-up when you need a boost. And because it's on my phone, I can play anywhere with an internet connection. If you want to find your inner detective, download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or on Google Play. I originally intended to tell a pretty simple story about a famous search and rescuer, a guy who's already at the center of many true crime stories. But Tim told me he'd solved his own daughter's murder before I even stepped foot in Texas, which meant the plan shifted almost immediately. Then, it turned out, the man he suspected of killing her was about to be on the loose, adding a sense of urgency to the whole project. The story only got more complicated when I found out that Tim's accused people of the same crime in the past, to disastrous results. I also witnessed proof of his undeniable charisma, the kind that makes you want to believe anything he says, or travel two hours to work in his office, and then go out on a stakeout while giggling and carrying a knife. I, too, got sucked into the adrenaline of it all. And now Tim is gone. I'm here on my second trip to the area south of Houston, standing in his office. I finally said no to his plan of sending me to get information from Clyde, because I thought it was both too dangerous and potentially a hindrance to the actual investigation. And after all that, Tim took off to go drag racing in Louisiana. Now I figure I may as well make the most of my trip here by reporting out the rest of the story alone. I want to start where this saga all began, with the killing of Ellen Beeson, the woman that Clyde Hedrick picked up at a nightclub back in 1984. When Tim first hit a dead end with his daughter's case, he turned his attention toward that one instead. He didn't believe the official story that Ellen had accidentally drowned. And Tim's hunch was apparently correct. The medical examiner had missed a crack in Ellen Beeson's skull. There was good reason to believe, at that point, that she'd been murdered by the last man to see her alive. Having Ellen Beeson's bones exhumed was the first building block in Tim's case that Clyde was capable of murder. But the story is so unbelievable. How does a medical examiner miss something so crucial? Whose bones get exhumed twice? And there's also the fact that a jury never found Clyde guilty of murder, only manslaughter. If I'm to buy Tim's theory that Clyde is responsible for the killing field's murderers, I want to get some clarity from an authority figure with at least some emotional distance from the situation. So I get in touch with the local district attorney's office. My name is Kevin Petroff. I'm the first assistant at the Galveston County District Attorney's Office. Kevin is one of the prosecutors who worked on Clyde's murder case. We meet down at the courthouse in Galveston Island, bright and early at 9 a.m. I've been here before to pick up some court records, but this time I head into a large office lined with books and sit down at an enormous conference table. The first question I have for Kevin is basically a gut check. I just want someone else to confirm if the situation with the exhumed bones and the missed crack in the skull and the potential serial killer running around 
is actually happening. Yes. So this case is very unusual in a a couple of of reasons, forensically speaking. One, I think uh, we came to the conclusion and it was solidified in the trial that the we believe the medical examiner at the time had been hiding or possibly even destroying evidence, which is a very weird place to be as a prosecutor. Um, the fact that this was uh, this poor woman was exhumed not once but twice uh, in the course of the investigation is very unusual. Um, so yeah, there was there was some weirdness to this. I asked Kevin about the particular challenges of prosecuting this case and about the medical examiner named Dr. Korndoffer. He's the guy who originally missed the crack in Ellen Beeson's skull. And as we got ready for trial, we met with Dr. Korndorfer, having no intent to call him as a witness, but wanting to be prepared. And we met with him at his house, and that's when he indicated he had found some of the photos, um, that they were in his storage area. It was the only case he could ever think of from ever having taken home this kind of evidence. And so we looked at what were slides from back then. And there were a lot of photographs taken, as you would expect it, but there was only one, maybe two, of the skull. All of the other slides from, of the skull from the autopsy were missing. They had been pulled out of the plastic sleeve that, where the slides were in. So it was just a bunch of empty slide pockets, I guess, um, that he gave no accounting for. And of course, the area where the fracture was was not shown in any photograph. So that really became kind of the, the difficulty in, in trying this case. Okay, so it seems like the medical examiner at the time either hid or destroyed evidence when Ellen was first found dead. But why then, after finding a huge crack in her skull, couldn't prosecutors put Clyde away for life? Yeah, and I think the other thing we wanted to discuss mainly was, you know, sort of the nuances between obtaining like a manslaughter and a a murder uh, verdict. I, and this is purely me guessing at at this, and and we, we talked to the jury a little bit, but not in great detail about this. I think that the problem for us at the end of the day, we charged them with first degree murder, was that because of the age of the case, Um, Because of the nature of the evidence, we couldn't really explain to the jury in any great detail where Ellen Beeson was murdered or how Ellen Beeson was murdered. We know we have a skull fracture that killed her, but we don't know, was she hit with a table leg? Was she knocked against something? Where that would have occurred, inside or outside? So that's just a lot of unanswered questions, I think, for a jury to deal with. And in my opinion, the manslaughter was was more of a compromise verdict. My mission for the week is to try and figure out what's really going on without Tim's influence. So I asked Kevin if I can get access to any taped depositions from the Ellen Beeson case. I want to get a better sense of Clyde outside of our 40-minute conversation, which, again, was very difficult to hear. Someone from the DA's office then emails me a huge video file. It's not a deposition, but it is an interview of Clyde conducted by someone from the Gallatin County Sheriff's Office and an FBI agent. That agent would be Richard Renison, the guy that Tim is constantly on the phone with. It's clear that they like each other. 
And Agent Renison is a big part of the reason that Clyde Hedrick was tried for killing Ellen Beeson. You see, although he now works for the FBI, he used to work at the League City Police Department. That meant he was long familiar with the details of her death, the weirdness of it, the idea that Clyde drove around with her body in the back of his truck and finally dumped her underneath an old couch, that he only got in trouble for abuse of a corpse. Slap on the wrist. The FBI eventually transferred Agent Renison back to the League City area. He quickly thought of Ellen Beeson and began working with local law enforcement to re-examine her file. He was shocked to see that her bones had been quietly exhumed in the 90s and that two other medical experts had found a crack in her skull that the original medical examiner had missed. A note was added to Ellen Beeson's file, and her body went back into the ground. Agent Renison felt he had a good reason to call Clyde in for a chat. This is from the tape I mentioned earlier, the one from the questioning session. You know, this isn't a theory we have. This isn't something we're saying, well, maybe she had a skull fracture. No, she had a skull fracture. But I don't know how it got there, at my point. Okay, didn't have well, it when, I, when I was seeing her. Well, and okay. So just, then you don't know, so maybe you did drink so much you blacked out. Oh, uh, jeez. No, you know? I did not. Because you were the only person with her, Clyde. You were the only person that was with her. And, and I asked you, could it have been when you put her in the truck? No, I laid her in the truck. Could it have been when you got her out? Did she bash her head on the concrete? No, could it have been that? Could it have been when you laid her down? No. Could it have been when the couch went on top of her? No. You, you, have, you have ruled out every other possibility except you killed her. I did not. I said you've ruled out every other possibility. So that the only thing left is that you caused this skull fracture. Well, I know I did not. What's interesting about this interview to me is that it's clear that Agent Renison thinks Clyde is responsible for more than just Ellen Beeson. He even compares Clyde to one of the most infamous serial killers of all time. You think Ted Bundy woke up every morning and said, I'm going to be the most rotten motherfucker I can be today? Nope. Well, yeah, you know, I've no, killed that no. many people. You too. know how everybody was attracted to him? They liked him. He was a magnetic personality. Sounds a lot like somebody else in this room. Everybody liked Clyde Hedrick. He's the alpha male. He's the dude people wanted to hang around. He was always the party guy. He always had weed. Fun-loving guy. Well, it doesn't sound like everybody talked good about me. Well, you know why? Because you're getting old now and they ain't scared of you anymore. It wouldn't scare me then. Bullshit. That ain't true either. That ain't true. They were real scared of you, Clyde. Why? Because you were mean. I get in touch with Agent Renison and meet him in a wood-paneled room in the Galveston Library. We chat a little bit about his craft beer hobby and life in the area before we move into the story of how he pushed to have Ellen Beeson's skull reexamined, all at the behest of one Tim Miller. The two men's lives have been tangled up ever since. As a supervisor, um, we don't generally work cases. And uh, I got promoted three and a half years ago, and even though the case is actually assigned to another agent right now, this is the only case that I've still got my hands involved with, um, to, to this degree. And is that primarily out of like loyalty to Tim, or no? It, it's not. It's not loyalty. Loyalty to Tim. It's um, I want to get this case solved. This is for me. So, yeah. Um, I guess a side effect of that would be, uh, you know, I've I've been very fortunate in the cold cases I worked. I only have one that 
we've not made an arrest on, and that's this one. And I'd, I'd like to go out when I retire, batting a thousand. So, yeah, I don't like to lose. <laughs> I also asked Agent Renison the same question I asked Kevin at the DA's office. Basically, is this for real? Agent Renison may be trying to retire batting a thousand, but this is my first time being involved in anything like this. I want to get a sense of whether this whole business of the killing fields is as unusual as it seems. You know, each each cold case is different. Each serial killer case is different. Um, but it's got a lot of the same characteristics and traits as other cold cases and serial murder cases. So I think Tim is the unusual part of this case, having somebody so involved in the case and... Um, with his expertise on, on searching and, and his, um, his involvement certainly makes it unusual. So. Is it typical to have such a close sort of working relationship with a civilian who's involved in a case that you're you know, investigating? Um, it's not uncommon, but at the same time, <laughs> he thinks I tell him everything, but of course I don't. <laughs> um, and, and, but he... Um, he does provide a lot of information to the case. He really does. Um, he he is able to get people to talk to him that are afraid to talk to law enforcement. Um, he, he's, he's, he's really good at what he does. He is. He's always providing information. Um, the man's got a memory like, un, like I've never seen. He, he would tell us, you know, so-and-so got arrested uh, for this particular charge, and it was on a Tuesday, and, uh, you know, talking from the 80s and 90s. And I would go back and look at the criminal history reports and look at that date, look on a calendar, and it was a Tuesday. Well, in this particular case, I mean, he is working his own daughter's murder alongside you, and, you know, obviously he's not bound by the same sort of ethical or, you know, bureaucratic sort of considerations, right? Yeah, and, and he'll occasionally call me with an idea, and I said, Tim, don't do that. And he said, okay, I won't. Um, it's a great idea, but if, if something were to come from it, we couldn't use it. And he understands that. And um, he, he's got some pretty good ideas sometimes, and some that are a little, little Tim, please don't do that. <laughs> but um, Agent Renison told me that he wants to hold a murderer accountable and that Tim provides an essential service in that regard. His ability to convince people to speak to law enforcement who otherwise might not. That same ability he has to rile people up and potentially get them in trouble is also his greatest asset from Agent Renison's perspective. And now we're, we're really hoping somebody will have some piece of information that we don't have that we can get our hands on that will help. Um, and people think, oh, I'm sure they already know this and don't call in and, or don't provide the, the information. So we're asking anybody who knew Donna or Audrey or Heidi or Laura, any of the four, please call in. Even if it's something redundant, um, we will absolutely look at it and relook at it. And, um, but, but the short answer is we need people's help and interviews are probably one of our biggest things right now. But, um, Someone could be sitting on a, a little pot of gold that could break the case wide open for us. So Tim has a natural distrust of authority, but it seems like at least some factions of local law enforcement are on board with helping him get the Killing Fields murder solved. It also sounds like they all know this will be an uphill battle. As in the case of Ellen Beeson, 
even when it seems obvious a murder happened, it's actually kind of hard to prove it. In the end, there's only so much that people like Agent Redison can do. And it's going to be up to amateur detectives like the folks Tim's recruited to finally put this decades-long mystery to rest. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So you may already be aware of Cass' newest true crime podcast, Lost in Panama, which explores the disappearance of two tourists in 2014. But if you haven't caught up yet on the latest episodes, I just want to make sure you're aware of some newly uncovered evidence and testimony that's shining new light on this case. So the first four episodes of Lost in Panama set up the foundation of what's known about the missing women, including a deep dive into a suspicious tour guide and the mysterious photos the women left behind. But episode five launches the investigation forward as a woman presents to the team a full, detailed story of exactly how the women were apparently abducted and killed. After this key piece of testimony, the pieces start to fit together, or at least start to make a little bit more sense. With this major breakthrough in hand, the team must then attempt to convince the Panamanian government that there's more going on here than the official story suggests. Listen to the series to find out if the case will finally be reopened to provide the families of the missing women closure after all these years. Every episode of Lost in Panama is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. How was, how was the rodeo? It was very, it's, it's the cook-off, so it's, it's a lot of fun. Cool. Like I said, I thought it made sense for us to sort of team up because we came here with the intention of going through some of those boxes ourselves and Tim had mentioned that you were going to do the same thing so yeah. I was like well, why don't we just, let's just do it together com- combine yeah. forces yeah so okay. yeah I, I wanted to do that Nina who's sweet and enthusiastic has brought her ex-husband and his new wife to Tim's office they're here for emotional support as she goes through the giant plastic tubs of evidence that Tim has pulled out of Clyde's old house but mainly they just tug on disposable vapes She's also brought a giant cassette deck to record our conversation. It's humming quietly on the floor as we dig through the bins. The work of leafing through papers is kind of boring. I mean, imagine if somebody was just going through the junk drawer of your house. Most of the stuff would be meaningless to them. But I'm also on edge. After all, Tim has repeatedly expressed to me that Clyde is barely being contained in the halfway house he's staying in. On the first day we met, this is what he said to me. Well, and here's what I told you, it's parole officer. He says, yeah, right now Clyde's not even allowed to go to the corner store. Okay. Uh, he's high risk, he's on an ankle monitor. And I said, you know what, you're trying to make some comfort out of this, which I'm not going to buy it. I said, you know what, your halfway house houses about 400 people. I said, guess what, in 2000, 
20 out of 400. 196 of them escaped and six of them were convicted murderers. So please don't try and convince me just because he's on an ankle monitor high risk that he's not capable of getting out of there. I have no idea if those stats are accurate, but I can believe that Clyde might be desperate for revenge against him and have nothing to lose. Also, Tammy, who works for Equisearch, also told me that sometimes people just show up at the office looking for the guy they've seen on TV. If you were looking for Tim, this would be a logical first stop. The idea of being in an unfamiliar place with a serial killer allegedly on the loose is probably messing with my head just a little bit. But I'm clearly not the only one who's considered the possibility that Clyde might just show up over here. At one point, Nina's ancient cassette deck makes a loud sound, and everyone sort of jumps. Kind of a funny moment. And so, uh, when you listen to the tape, it'll kind of, I'm just setting the background for it, but he's... Oh, it just clicked. So we have to turn the tape over. Oh, that was the door, sorry. Yeah. I did too. But, uh, I saw your face, and I know you thought it was the door. And so... Nina wants to go through these photographs, address books, and various mementos in hopes that she might find some definitive proof that Clyde knew the Killing Fields victims before they died. There are all kinds of notebooks here, too. Maybe a name that her Grandpa Joe used to mention will stick out, or a name that she's heard him say on one of the tons of audio recordings that he made right when Heidi first disappeared. Another new development in the case is that those tapes are currently being processed for the first time ever by the FBI. There were like 30 cassette tapes that my grandfather would uh, go out and search for his daughter. And then he would come back and, and it, he kept a notebook in his car. He kept one out. He'd write down notes and, you know, important information. Then when he got home, he would record himself, and he would read his notes, and he would add detail on the people's reaction and who else was around. Just very, very detailed. The League City Police were apparently uninterested in this information, according to Nina. They had that information for like a week, and then they gave it back to my mother and said, we didn't find anything of use in these. Well, now the FBI's taken them, and they've send them to Quantico, They've have, they're having them digitized. And um, we are actually meeting uh, in the next few days and we're going to be um, I'm meeting with the team that he's putting together for us to go through the journals. And then we're gonna listen to the corresponding tapes it's because I've started going through and highlighting, okay, I think this person's important. I think this, basically what my grandfather was begging the Lake City Police to do back in the day is what I've just started, started kind of doing and finding people to see if they're still alive. Are they still in the area? I've been, you know, trying to do like background checks and, you know, just trying to run them down through social media or whatever. And I've found quite a few, so that's what we're going to get together and talk about when I meet up with them this week, is, okay, here they are. Now we need to start interviewing them, you know, before more people pass away. Right. Yeah. So you're basically, now you're basically a cop. You're doing, <laughs> you're doing a lot of detective work. Uh, yeah, may have missed my calling at some point. <laughs> if I have to do all the legwork and spoon feed it so that it, 
saves time, then I'm going to. And I want to do this before a known murderer is truly free, walking about and monitored and allowed to go out and rape and murder again. I just feel like there is an urgency here at this point. It's not like we're uh, going after someone who has a sparkling clean background. I mean, this is his MO. He's violated people most of his adult life. And this is these are just the things he got caught doing or got reported. So, you know, for every one of those charges that he has on his rap sheet, how many were too scared to speak up? How many were raped and just felt guilt or shame over that and didn't come forward? And, you know, I think we live... Nina's Grandpa Joe died in 1992 of what Tim refers to as a broken heart. And when I first met Tim, he described the awful loneliness he felt at that time knowing he was now the only surviving father left to try and figure out what happened with regards to the killing fields. The responsibility was seemingly all his. But Nina feels similarly. Basically, I'm just following my grandfather's lead, you know, his words and what he was begging and pleading someone to do to try to, A, find his daughter, and then once she was found, find who was responsible for it. Nina tells me she's been dreaming frequently about Heidi lately. She gets emotional talking about the way she's been treated by the local police. They weren't just throwaway people. They were, she was a mom, she was a sister, she was a daughter, she was an aunt, she was a friend. You know, she was, she was so much more than her body being found in that field. And I think it's important for people to know that. And she corroborates the fact that the League City Police have basically obstructed Tim from conducting his own investigation. Again, her frustration is palpable. I truly believe they have a shrine at the League City Police Department with Tim's face on it that says, hey, Tim Club. I really do. They, They do not like him. And it is no secret. And... You know, it's just, um, it's disgusting, really, if you ask me, because at the end of the day, the man lost his daughter. And if you don't have compassion for that, then there's something wrong with, with you. Nina and I dig through the boxes for a long time, but we don't really find anything of note. The cops, a.k.a. the hate Tim Club, still don't want to talk to me, citing an active investigation. Feeling like I've hit a dead end, I go... With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Go home to New York and get to work on the show. Although I feel like I've got enough material to do a fascinating profile of an incredibly complex man, I don't necessarily feel like I fully delivered on the original idea of breaking ground on the infamous cold case that's upended his life. 
But five days before the show is about to come out, I get a phone call from Tim who tells me we might be able to break ground on this after all. He's been telling me that he's figured out what happened to his daughter Laura since we met. But now it seems like he's really done the impossible. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not telling you a story. Run me on a wild goose chase by no means. You gotta trust me on it. So, again, it's five days before our show is about to come out, and Tim has just called me to let me know that there's been a major breakthrough in the Killing Fields case. I asked him what happened, and he tells me. It's an incredible story. Someone left a message with the Equisearch answering service saying he needed to get something off his chest. Yeah, this guy, uh, I spent time with him the last three weeks. I took him to his attorney. I took him to the FBI twice. He got with me on Saturday and told me the whole story, where Laura was murdered, how she was murdered. He was actually there. Uh, He was there when she was murdered, and it wasn't in Lake City. It was in Dickinson. Tim says that the man even explained how Laura died. An intentional overdose on cocaine. And then it just 100% broke on Saturday when he took me actually to the places, showed me everything. And then uh, I talked to Richard Renison and Kevin Petroff about it. Uh, Our guy literally is at at the attorney that I got in right now as we're speaking, getting 100% immunity. And and so anyhow, it's, I, I think we're, yeah, I think we're, we're closing, we're closing in. This man claims he was one of Clyde's accomplices. There were two, but one has since passed away. Most crucially, he knew details about the crime scene that only a few people knew about. Remember when I said that the Western shirt found in the killing fields was important? This guy, who I'm not naming per Tim's request, referenced it specifically. But, no, I've got, I've got every detail. Yep, I've got every detail, so I anticipate our guy's going to get immunity today. And, uh... And the thing the topper is, and uh, I said, well, after he killed Laura and everything, I said, what did y'all do? And he said, wait until after it got dark. He said, and Clyde put this Western shirt over top of her. And I said, why do you put the fucking Western shirt top? He said, man, his words because Clyde said, I don't want the dead bitch looking back at me. Nobody knew about that Western shirt. Tim tells me more details about what happened details that he understandably wants to reveal himself later on. We then chat a little bit about how lucky we are that the podcast is coming out when it is, because it will help bring attention to these latest findings. I I don't know how this all works out, but the timing could not have been any better. I know. It's it's spooky. It's it's spooky, it it is, but... uh, uh, 
the time it could. Yeah. There's no, no no planner in the world could have planned this the way that it's it's going right now. I know we're talking about the gruesome details of his daughter's murder, but we still managed to have a long conversation that is sort of affectionate and sweet. All very Tim World. And as we wrap up our call, I think about him seated in the middle of the EquiSearch office with his arms behind his head and his adoring employees surrounding him. And I smile. Tim is, after all, very, very charming. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Anyway, I'll let you go. Enjoyed it. All right. Talk soon. Talk soon. Bye, Tim. But before I let him go, I ask him a question I've always wanted to know the answer to. Before, it was just theoretical, but now it's starting to seem improbably relevant. What does Tim plan to do now that he's wrapped up the central drama of his life? The case that's given his life purpose for practically the last four decades. Wow. I mean, if this gets wrapped up in a couple of weeks, what what are you going to do after that? This has been animating your your existence for so long, this pursuit of well, you know what? I have to. I have to learn how to live again. You know, and I don't know what that new normal is going to be when you live this shit for 38 years. So I've got, I've got a big adjustment of, and uh, I'm not ashamed to say that. Uh, you know, there's there's going to be some therapy involved and stuff. Uh, you know, I've. I won't be able to get through this on my own and and be able to live a halfway normal life. So I've, I've got to, I have to learn a new life. I want to go drag racing, you know, when I can for my stress release and enjoyment and and uh, hang out with the gearheads and, and stuff and talk about something besides goddamn dead people. <laughs> <laughs> But it feels like only a matter of seconds before Tim begins to contradict himself. He may want to go drag racing and stop thinking about all this, but he also can't help himself. Tim recently won a wrongful death suit against Clyde, which is a whole different story that I'll let Tim tell himself. But just know that he plans to put out a press release about it and that the timing of the press release is very important to him. I think what I'm going to do to really fuck his head up. So I think we're probably going to do a press release on that we won the wrongful death suit uh, against Clyde Hedrick for $110 million because I want to do that before he gets out of prison. And uh, just to kind of fuck with his head. And, uh, and then hopefully if things work the way I'd like them to work, and he'll be laughing at his guys and they're oh, fuck that Tim Miller, blah, blah, blah. But then before he gets out, have him indicted on, on these murders. But no, I'd like to fuck with his head again. You love to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Tim is someone who, by his own admission, will do whatever it takes to get what he wants. And although he's been known to stage elaborate productions to that end, this confession ultimately just fell into his lap. No wonder he isn't satisfied with the outcome. 
Although his sense of humor is, in part, what's kept him alive through the tragic events he's endured and continues to bear witness to every day at his job, so is the sense of mission. I'm not exactly shocked that he plans to keep playing games with Clyde, even though it seems like he's finally won the only game that matters. Yeah, I want to go ahead and get approval to go ahead and do a press release on this thing, which, you know, we're... I'm fairly popular down here with the media stuff, so yeah, they would, they would jump all over that. And, and again, just fuck with his head, and then he thinks, well, fuck that, Tim Miller, and I'm getting out anyway, and then have his ass indicted before he gets out. So mm-hmm. I'm double fucking. <laughs> 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 all right, well, at least you haven't lost your sense of humor. <laughs> no, no, it's One of the very first things Tim told me is that he sees the broken wagon wheel he keeps in his horse barn as a metaphor for his life. And by that, he just meant that some of its spokes were broken or missing, and that his own life was far from perfect. But as our time together wore on, I began to suspect that the wheel, this circular object, really represented something else. Hey, son, I got back yesterday with a motherfucking day in the office. God almighty, we got slammed with calls about a school teacher missing in Alvin, 17-year-old girl, just graduated from high school, top 10 of her class, dropped dead gorgeous. And uh, I worked with police department in Lake Jackson, and then we got some phone records, and then we make a long story short, uh, a guy in Dallas that does phone records called me and called detective and said man I, I think i got a location out her we left here quarter after nine had to go about 120 miles away and man he put us right on top of her body and what happened is she missed a curve went through some woods ended up down in a ravine and god bless her she was dead in her car and without the phone records she would have never been found helicopter airplane nothing would have ever found her so and then got back in Vigilante is written by me, Ali Conti. It's produced by Colin Thompson, Trey Schultz, and me. Editing by Trey Schultz. Music editing and supervision by Colin Thompson. Mixing and mastering by Matt Sewell. Voiceover and narration was recorded in cast studios in Los Angeles in the Relic Room in New York and was engineered by Trey Schultz and Sam Baer. Cover art by Leah Kantrowitz. Lauren Vespoli provided fact-checking. Our end credit song is called To Walk Alone and is by Rebecca Rose Harris and Franklin Mockett. A very special thanks to Hannah Smith. This is our final installment of our show about Tim Miller. Vigilante is a cast original production. Mm
If you're familiar with CAST's other investigative podcast, Opportunist, then you'll be familiar with our plans for reporting out future seasons of this series. We're going to be digging into the stories of various vigilantes, so that's people who, for better or for worse, decided to take the law into their own hands. Just take a second and make sure you're subscribed through the app you're using right now. That way you'll be notified when new stories and seasons are available. And if you have ideas for people we should profile, drop me a note in your Apple Podcast review. Someone on the team will see it, most likely me. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.